0: What would you like the power to
1: do? Mobile banking
2: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA member FDIC.
1: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast.
0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests on this podcast and the, the header of this podcast is The Year's Best Sports Writing 2023, which is a book that I guest edited from Triumph Books. It comes out October 3rd, so you can get this book anywhere on uh, Amazon, wherever you get your books. Um, it is the annual anthology of The Year's Best Sports Writing. And my plan for the next month is to have as many writers who are in the main book as I can get on. And I have three great ones today. They'll tell you their stories and, and how they reported these amazing pieces that they did. And you'll get to know a little bit about them. Obviously, you'll get to know a lot about the stories that made the best sports writing 2023. The guests are Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Cassidy Randall, who is a freelance writer and whose piece in the book appeared in the This magazine. Uh, these are three brilliant writers and uh, it was an absolute honor and pleasure to, uh, to place them in this book. So that's today's podcast. It's a little bit different, but I think if you're into writing and reporting, you will dig it. So the year's best sports writing 2023 coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I mentioned at the top, Alex Coffey is a reporter and writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She covers the Philadelphia Phillies. She's been there since 2022. Prior to that, she worked with me at the athletic where she covered the Oakland A's and I believe maybe the Seattle storm as well. She's a proud, as she says, second generation sports writer, her father, Wayne Coffey, longtime fixture in New York sports writing and, uh, Wrote for the Daily News for a long time uh, and wrote some amazing books as well. And I'm pleased to be joined by Alex Coffey. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Richard.
0: Well, um, you wrote an amazing story. And for this podcast purposes, rather than me um, sort of give my own Cliff Notes version of it, I'm going to let you, but let me let the readers know, or the listeners, I should say, know what Alex's story is. The headline is, The Phillies Andrew Bellotti made a fatal mistake as a teen – a Tale of Remarkable Forgiveness Followed. And it's a really uh, beautiful piece of writing and reporting by Alex Coffey. And Alex, if you would, in your own words, um, tell my listeners what this piece is and how you came to find it.
2: Yeah, so um, basically it's about a uh, Phillies reliever who's now, he's now pitching in their minor league system, but his name is Andrew Blotti. And at the beginning of his career, the very beginning, I believe when he was 18 years old, He was driving his girlfriend, um, he was driving his girlfriend to an appointment and he was running late and it was raining and he was like in this new car that he hadn't driven that much and was going downhill. His car accelerated and he collided with another car killing the driver and basically um, was sentenced to um, just under a year or five years in jail. And then his sentence was reduced because he wrote a letter to the widow um, of the man who was killed, apologizing and talking about the impact of his actions and how, um, how he wouldn't be able to live with what he did and just really showing a lot of genuine remorse. Um, so the widow advocated for his sentence to be reduced. And basically to spin it all forward, the story is about, um, how the widow has been following his career throughout the Phillies playoff run, um, last year and continues to follow his career today. Um, so it's really just a story of forgiveness and, you know, the, the, the power of her forgiveness on his life and his career and how it's enabled him to kind of forgive himself, but also, um, you know how her own forgiveness has helped her move on. So, um, so it's kind of that's kind of the Cliff Notes version. Obviously, it's a lot more deep than that. But, uh, but yeah, I would just say it's it's a story of forgiveness.
0: Let me ask you two questions about this in terms of your approach as a reporter. One, how did you approach Lynette Reed, who is the widow of um, the person that uh, Andrew Bellotti killed in this accident? And then how did you approach Andrew You, you, In some ways, um, you know, they are the, not in some ways, they are the two central figures in your story. Um, They never meet, but you as the reporter have to tie them together. So how did you approach each of those subjects in terms of what you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, yeah. And that that made it a really unusual reporting process for me, something that I hadn't experienced before because um, all of a sudden I felt like I was more, I wouldn't say a character, but I felt like I was more, um, uh, I was a conduit to both of them um, (laughs) because they weren't talking. Uh, But for starters, I I initially reached out to Andrew just about doing a a broader piece about his career. And understandably so, uh, he and his agent were a little bit... um, What's the word? Sensitive about this topic, about the accident. You know, they didn't want people to Google his name and see the first thing pop up be, you know, Andrew Bellotti charged with XYZ. Um, I noticed that a lot of the fans over the course of the season were um grouping him together with other players who had gotten DUIs or had been arrested on, you know, charged with domestic assault. And that was basically my pitch to them was I think there's a huge misunderstanding here you know he wasn't under the influence of anything he um he was just running late and it's not to say that he he should have been speeding obviously he shouldn't have been speeding but um you know it's it's not you know there's nuance to everything and i think that the nuance here would be good for for everyone to know you know just to bring more understanding to the situation And but but originally in my pitch, it was going to be a story about his broader career. And it kind of changed over the course of talking to him and then talking to Lynette, um, because when I talked to Lynette, it became really clear that she was following the Phillies. And she lived in South Dakota at the time. And I just remember thinking, like, why does this woman know so much about the fact that they just signed Trey Turner and why is she excited about that? And why is she peppering me with all these questions? That seems odd. So I asked her why she's been, why she's been following them. And then that, that brought the story back to the present, which is she's been following them because she's following him and she's invested in his career and she wants to see him succeed because she thinks that he's honoring uh, the legacy of her late husband um, so at that point, this is when I kind of become more, um, more of like a conduit to both of them because they're not talking. So I brought that back to Andrew and I basically gave him, um, uh, the opportunity to just say, we can can this whole thing if we want to right here. Um, cause I don't think that there's one way to process something as traumatic as what he went through. So I said, you know, if this is um, if this is the kind of thing that's going to open a lot of wounds and like cause you to relive a lot of trauma, I don't think it's worth putting it on our website and putting it in the newspaper. Um, And this is what she said. And just take like a couple of days to sit with it and, you know, and think about what you want to do with this. And he ended up wanting to run with it anyway. And, kind of came with his own response to her words. And so I was, I, they were not talking directly. I was like the conduit between both of them, um, which made it really unusual from a reporting standpoint. But, um, but that's basically how I handled it from start to finish was just try to be as, um, as delicate and as, as understanding. And in, even if that means you're putting, you know, your story at risk, which is like a trivial thing in the grand scheme of things, because, These are people's lives. And obviously that matters more than what I'm publishing on a given day. So I just tried to like lead with that, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Um, You know, there's a lot of young, I'm sure writers, reporters, television people who listen to this podcast. Um, What did you learn during the course of your reporting on how to ask people questions about the worst day of their life?
2: Mm. Um. I think, um, I think it's just picking up on subtle things, picking up, I mean, obviously when you're talking to people over the phone, you can't pick up on, um, body language, just trying to read energy and read, you know, comfort level and where the conversation is going and trying to make it, you know, it's not going to be organic because, you know, no one wants to talk about the worst day of their life, but, um, you know, that's something that I rely on a lot in the clubhouse is just reading body language, reading energy, seeing if someone is open to something like, um, picking up on these cues that are non, you know, um, maybe something that you can like gloss over if you aren't paying as close enough attention. So that was something that I tried to, tried to lean on, but it's, it's definitely challenging. And like I said, it's not something that anyone ever wants to talk about, but I I guess the other thing I would mention is just like, you know, I felt better when the story published, knowing that I, um, I gave them both multiple opportunities to, to have it not run, you know, that I feel like that made everyone feel more comfortable throughout the whole process. It like took pressure off the process. It was more like, we're all choosing to do this together. It was more collaborative. Um, I think that that made a big difference in, in the reporting that came out of it and also, how we all felt about the finished product.
0: I think the last thing I want to ask you is about um, the aftermath of the story coming out. Um, You know, the story comes out and, you know, I'm sure um, in many ways it's like great to get great feedback. Like this was really well done and it's a beautiful story told at the same time. um, There's also two people out there who are going to read and process the story now that they, and now they have, like again, this moment in their lives become very, very public. So this obviously wasn't in your piece, but I'm just curious. Obviously, as the person who was sort of guest editing this, like when you talk to um, when you talk to Andrew Bellotti, and when you talk to uh, Lynette Reed after the story came out, or maybe even weeks after the story came out, like what was their reaction? Like what happened to them? How did they process this? this thing now becoming much more public than it was before your piece.
2: They were both. um, I checked in with Andrew first and he said he was really um, grateful for the time we spent on it and happy with how it came out. And, um, and Lynette basically reinforced that. Um, And I, and I like kept checking in with them over the next couple of weeks um, and not always just about the story, you know, just like checking in to see how they're doing and have it like, I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time talking to them about this. So I kind of developed a little bit of a rapport. Um, you know, obviously it's easier with Andrew cause I see him a lot, but with Lynette, um, her living in South Dakota, I'm not going to have opportunities to cross paths with her, but, uh, but yeah, just stayed in touch and, um, and then, connected back with them after ESPN ran. uh, um, I think they did like a short film on them meeting about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. Um, And I just followed up and made sure that that was like something that they were okay with something, you know, because when I wrote the story, I wasn't, you know, they were both unsure if they would ever meet at that point, they weren't even talking. Um, So, you know, they, but, but luckily after the ESPN thing came out, they were, they both said that they were happy that it happened and it brought them a sense of closure and a sense of peace. Um, I guess just like my thinking going into something like that is that um, closure and peace is not always going to be the um, like, we can't assume that that's, what's going to come out of something like this, like having um, two people meet who are at the epicenter of this traumatic event. Um, So I think it just, leading with empathy and leading with understanding, even if, you know, you're not going to get, um, you might not get the feedback that you want. If that makes sense.
0: It does. Yeah. I mean, also shows like, and I think you understand this even at a really young age, is that like, uh, like the power and responsibility that like your words can have, like, you know, in in some ways, not in some ways, I shouldn't sort of even phrase it like that. Like your piece, Really change the course of these two people's lives in terms of how they process this, and even like just meeting or whatever. Like, and that's a, you know, that's a pretty awesome responsibility. And now, one of the, again, one of the takeaways that I had after I read your piece was just like how, um, how thoughtful you were with both parties. Um I don't know how to say sort of free. You should like we're very non-judgmental. Like you let the reader. You presented sort of what happened and then you let the reader make he or she's sort of interpretation of how to interpret your story, which I think is, was a real skill by you because it, you know, it wouldn't have been hard for you in some ways to sort of, I don't know if these, and this is the right phrasing, but like align yourself somewhere, but you didn't yeah. do that as the writer. You sort of just, you, 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 you let the readers sort of take it in, um, and and I thought that was, uh, I mean, I thought that was just just a really sort of masterful uh, way to do it. Uh, the last thing is before I let you go, Alex is so you've, um, you know, you've now covered two baseball teams uh, on two different uh, coasts, uh, mm-hmm. but you clearly have more range than baseball. Um, do you think you'll make your sort of career in doing baseball stuff, or do you think ultimately? Um, like there'll be a time where you want to leave the clubhouse behind and do stuff. The one thing about baseball and I'm sure you know this from your dad and stuff is like for the people who really love the sport, it is intoxicating and they never seem to get bored with it. (laughs) Um, So so where do you lie on this sort of scale?
2: Yeah. I I mean, it's funny because I think that there was a time earlier in my career and I'm to be, you know, I am still early in my career. I I hope. <laughs> I'm still very young, but like <laughs> you are at the very, very beginning, um, where I wasn't as interested in doing the daily stuff and I wasn't as interested in doing the nuts and bolts. And now, um, after a few years of covering a beat, I've come to learn that like that stuff leads to just being there every day, writing things that maybe aren't as um enticing. Um, it leads to better stories down the road and it leads to better relationships and Um, and that's what I love about covering baseball is that if you show up and you're there every day, people notice, and I feel like more times than not, that gets rewarded. Um, and you notice things, I mean, you pick up on things, you see interactions, you see something in someone's locker, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I actually feel like I've gotten, it works really well, um, with the kinds of human interest stories that I want to write because even though it's a grind, I feel like it leads to better storytelling in the end. Um but that being said, I would love to be able to do, you know, human interest, human interest stories um, full-time. Um, I just don't know, you know, it's kind of up in the air right now. I feel like those jobs are few and far between um, in the media landscape these days, but But that's definitely kind of the lens that i look at everything through even when i'm writing uh, a game story or um a notes column or whatever it might be um, i feel like i kind of look at things through that more um human interest type lens
0: yeah the the jobs i mean the story still exists the assignment still exists the problem is the full-time jobs to do that don't exist as much and can you make a can you pay your bills as a yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of a long form writer that that's really the question but um but yes. you should go you should still go for that because they're out there uh alex coffee is um uh covering the philadelphia phillies for the philadelphia inquirer something she's done over the last uh year plus P- prior to that she worked at the athletic and again you can catch uh her story um just an amazing piece in the year's best sports writing 2023 and the headline of the story is the Phillies Andrew Bilotti made a fatal mistake as a teen, a tale of remarkable forgiveness followed. That's from Alex Coffey in the Philadelphia Inquirer, December 21st, 2022. Uh, Alex, um, keep up the great work. Um, I'll certainly be reading. We, uh, we miss you at the athletic, but uh, the, the Inquirer got a good one. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me today on the sports media podcast.
1: Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: All right, as I said at the top, this is a show that I'm really excited to do because obviously this book means a lot to me. And one of the people in the book that we honored for just an incredible piece is Derek Gould. He is the lead baseball writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, if you are a baseball fan my sense is you've probably come across his work. His story in the book is A New Bat, Old Friends, and Timeless Magic as Cardinals Albert Pujols soars to 700. And I'm pleased to be joined by Derek Gould. Derek, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you so much for uh, including me in that book and that that story. Um, It uh, means a lot. It means a lot to me. Uh, I hope to someday find a way to articulate it which is kind of my job to articulate things um but i'm looking for the words to say thanks so thank you
0: well the story sort of picked itself but uh you're welcome um one of the reasons uh, i i mean there's a lot of reasons i loved your piece but one of it is that you led with the visiting bat boy for the game um before we sort of get into it i I think for this podcast i want to let the writer sort of tell the listeners what the piece is so for people who have not read this, can you tell people what this piece is?
1: Yeah. So this is the story of Albert Pujols reaching 700 home runs. Um, He had 699 and 700, both in the same game in his return to Dodger stadium. Uh, and it is trying to capture that whole evening and spectacle um, in that moment, but also uh, kind of address the history of it and, You know, this notion that, you know, he's doing it back with the team that he was first with, that he was great with, that he was a three-time MVP with, that he's doing it in a year where he has said within a few weeks from hitting that home run, he's going to retire, that he was doing it back at Dodger Stadium was a big part of this because, you know, I had a thesis that, you know, if he hadn't been a Dodger, he probably wouldn't have been a Cardinal had he not kind of revitalized and reworked his role there, had such fun, being a Dodger after coming out of the Angels situation, that he wouldn't have sought a return to the Cardinals, and, and what a glorious return um, and closure it was for him. Um, and then there were the other things that you go into that you know you grab it to the ballpark, and I'm told that it's the anniversary to the date of the fir- of the debut of the first ballplayer in the majors from the Dominican, and here is Albert Pools about to become the first member of the 700 Homer Club from the Dominican Republic. Um, he couldn't make that stuff up. Um, and so it was with all that as the, as all of that going on, that, that swirl of, of possibilities, um, to try to capture the story of when, uh, when he hit that 700th home run, um, into the seats. And when he, just before he hit 699, um, you know, I saw the, the bat boy bring a bat out and, you watch the bat boys enough. You usually kind of see their, uh, their habits. Right. And, uh, he brought two bats out to other guys. So why do you only bring one bat out to Albert? And I waited around in the clubhouse to ask him. And that was kind of part of the, the, the benefit of being there and sticking around and knowing that like, maybe this question works out. Maybe it doesn't. Um, Maybe I don't get much of an answer and there's not a much story there, but what if there is? And I'm gonna try to try to find a way to talk to the bad boy and I did
0: to me, the brilliance of this piece is that you didn't have a week or two or three weeks to write it. you had you sh- I, I, ultimately, I'll ask you, I have no idea how long you had. but this is essentially uh, like uh you know w- what in the profession is called the game story uh, where you're writing about an event. Uh, That happened within um, either the course of like a couple hours before or 12 hours before or 24 hours before. Um, But it reads like a magazine piece, which is just to me a remarkable job by you. Um, How did this story come together in terms of the amount of time it took you to report? And let's take it from after the game itself. uh, When did you ultimately sort of file the piece to the post-dispatch?
1: Good question. So um, if you if you allow me to kind of rewind the clock a little bit, because I can give a sense of what deadline looks like there. Um, so it's a West Coast deadline. Let's start there. So it's a late not late game. Um, even in the best of circumstances, I'm not going to get a game story in the paper. The concern was, would I get a 700 home run story in the paper? Um, and if he, he hit 100 at 1035 or earlier, St. Louis time, there was a chance that I would get it in the paper. Um, just like a story that this happened, right? Like the actual feat happened here. Here we go. And we had a photographer there from the post dispatch, um, Robert Cohen, who uh, was part of our Pulitzer winning group. And he was there um, not for this. He didn't not he, for the for one of Pulitzer years ago for a coverage there in St. Louis. Um, he was there and he was under kind of the same pressure, right? If the hits, before 10 35 have the story, have the photo. If not, then you're writing for the web and then you have to come back with the complete story. And I'll, I'll get to when that deadline is after that. So if that, so it's kind of a rolling deadline, right? Like, because it's an event, you, you, you have to have it ready to go or be ready to write it. Um, when it happens, if you have a chance to get it in the paper and then, Then there would would be an incomplete game, but then come back also on the same kind of treadmill with a complete story that will either replace that one um, because it won't make the paper, so replace it on the web or add to it. Okay, so that's kind of the structure, right? He hits it at ten thirty or ten thirty-two, I believe. So three minutes to have a photo and a story in the paper, which we pulled off. We were able to get he hits 700 in the paper. So then my deadlines circle to being essentially constant. If that makes sense, when the game ends, I got to file a completed gamer that it happened. I do that. Now to your question, um, I have until 4 a.m. California time to file that story. So whatever the, and maybe a little bit before 4 a.m. Cause it has to go up at 6 a.m. St. Louis time. That's the deadline. For that particular story, and so whatever time I had in the clubhouse and afterwards, um, you know, say I get all that goes, we wait. There's longer press conferences. There's longer moments. There's waiting for the bat boy. Say I'm done at midnight. Um, then it's a matter of turning it around by about you know about three thirty, um, and I think I actually uh, put it up at maybe three ten. Um, you know, and then you got to edit it a little bit or a lot bit. You have to edit it and put a headline on it and all that stuff. So that takes a little bit of time.
0: When you filed this piece, did you know it was good? Uh, I mean, I, I, writers are historically incredibly hard on themselves, but I wonder just even objectively, I mean, you knew you did the work, you knew you did the reporting, you wrote it, I, there had to be some place in your mind that, that you were like, man, I th- I think this is good. I think I think I really captured something that was unique here.
1: Yeah, it's a great. That's a really great and fair question. Um, here's how I I looked at it. To be honest, is it had to be good because? And I thought about this all those days leading up. You know, he's at 698 for much of that road trip, and you kind of felt the gravitational pull of the poetry that it would happen at Dodger Stadium. So you go to Dodger Stadium there, um, and I'm I, I've had some great mentors in my life and I, I remember working at the toms Picky in with uh, pete finney who was the columnist there and he told me once he was like never take for granted a championship on your beat and also never <laughs> and know that that, you, that you're writing for history at that point in time you know and i kind of always had in the back of my mind and i you know i don't know how much it happens anymore but you think about like the newspaper articles or the photos or the things that you clip and save, right? I mean, this is one of those, right? That a young fan, maybe, I don't know if they do that nowadays, but definitely in the eighties, nineties, you know, you're buying that newspaper and you're clipping it and you're saving and you're pinning it on the wall. Man, the worst possible thing is for you to have that pinned on some kid's wall. And there's a typo in the lead, right? Um, you know, you, you want to rise to the occasion. is what a lot of my mentors told me is, When you have something that happens rare you have to be as good as the moment. You have to aim to be that um, and to provide for the readers. Um, You know, there are going to be games in August that don't mean much and there are going to be games where you're covering something and very few people are going to read it and everything like that and then there are things like this where how many beat writers have covered a 700th home run on their beat? You know, not many and you have to rise to the occasion. So I thought about that a lot going into it. wasn't a question of whether or not was it good when I filed it. It was this better be good when I started working on it, if that makes sense. Like this has to do what, everything I can to capture this moment. And, and if I don't, then it's going to be remembered for not for missing the mark. Um, so how can I do that? And I think that kind of that reminder Throughout the day, throughout the evening, even after the game, really kind of helped my reporting in the sense of keep track of the details, talk to as many people as possible, um, find the right person to answer answer the right question, um, do the reporting so that the writing carries itself. You know, so the well, so that the reporting carries the writing.
0: One thing that um, one thing that we were talking about before we started taping that that's sort of interesting to me and maybe speak to this book is like, historically in this book, I think you have found a lot of, um, you know, a lot of long form work, whether it's in a traditional old school magazine or now, and you know, today, um, you might find that on the atavist or you find that on, uh, the ringer or the Mm -hmm. athletic, et cetera. I mean, you know, you remain a beat writer for, although it's become obviously a, a, digitally centric publication as well but you know you work for a newspaper mm-hmm. you work for something that comes out um, daily um do you think that how do I sort to say this you must love the the idea of writing like repeatedly or writing almost daily as opposed to having the um, more of the time to sort of sit back and uh, have a couple weeks to report and to To write, I think what you do is incredibly invaluable, but I also think a lot of times that it's taken for granted by, uh, and this is not personally like a knock on your paper because I don't know anything about your paper, but it's taken for granted, I think, often by the newspapers that employ people like you. Just how hard the job is to do on a daily basis and to come up with like a high level of work every day when burnout is real and family issues are real. And just the fact that like, it's just, it's hard to be great every day. Um, so I don't really have a question here, Derek. I just wonder if you want to sort of, sort of offer just some, I don't know, your own top line thoughts on just the fact that like you really have to sort of be good every day. And maybe sometimes like the people don't even realize like how good you have to be if, I I could have asked that more elegantly, but I think you know what I'm saying.
1: No, it's fine. I do. Yeah, I, I want to first say that, like, I, my the paper, the St. Louis Post Dispatch that I work for, has time and time and time again proven how much it values beat work, uh, how much it supports, and and I and I mean this sincerely, how much it uh, it it really recognizes the value of strong beat work. Um, on the baseball beat. I know that one, obviously most of all, um, cause I've been there, but I also covered hockey for a little while at the paper long another lifetime ago. Um, you know, but they have repeatedly shown, um, in action and in statements that, that they recognize what, um, strong baseball beat writing does for the paper. And part of that is because of the history there. Um, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know the late Rick hommel who is a, just one of the most important people to me in my life um you know he's in the hall of fame in the in the in the riders wing there so is Bob bragg who was before him so is dick kegel who was before Rick um you know these are the beat writers who covered the cardinals and you know at the stand, I benefit from the tailwind of the greats who came before me to who showed like look this is this is important. Beat work is important here. And, uh, and this is how you do it. Um, it's radically changed in the day and age of no longer, say, being an afternoon paper, um, no longer being a morning paper, um, how, we, how we do things. that And that, that gets to kind of your point or the part of your question that I, I find most interesting is, yeah, I mean, I enjoy the challenge of trying to be good every day and recognizing when you have to provide a great story. Um, whether the subject is great or the moment is great, and you have to try to reach that, and you don't always, and you try to come back again tomorrow. Um, I have for the for for all my life. Uh, my fondness for newspapers has been inextricably linked with my love for baseball because baseball because newspapers is how I got baseball, right? And they both are very daily, they both have airs, they both have 0 for fours and they both have three homer games, and then they both have to show up again tomorrow, whether it's at the home plate or on your porch. And I just have always put the two together, and it's like I, I, I treasure the fact that I got to make both of them my career. But to your point, it's not just the day. Like you asked, do I wish if I could pull back and, and work on stories over the long haul? I do that too, and that's, I think one of the things I really like about beat writing um, is that you get to do a bit of everything. You got to do the notebooks. You got to do the things that are there that day. You got to do the things that take 15 minutes to write and you got to take the, and you get, and you get to do the things that take 15 days to write. And you get to do the things that take many months to write. Um, I've had stories that, uh, you know, there was a story a few years back that I started reporting in spring training with an eye on having it ready for Mother's Day, like I knew that it was going to take a long time to a um, get the get the interviews that I needed, um, and b get you know the players and and their mothers to open up about it, and then I wanted to make sure I had time to write it where I wasn't like writing it on Friday night for that Sunday paper. I wanted to make sure that I had the time to write it because the the topic needed. The care that I, the time gave me, um, so you can do all those things, and I, I, I like that element about beat writing because it is a challenge of both what can you provide them today that is different, um, how do you get through today, but also how can you, uh, how can you stay organized enough to not lose sight of also doing those great stories that uh, maybe we sometimes think only you know, appear in magazines or only appear in certain outlets. How can I, um, you know, my editor at one point in time, this is what he gave me. This is a great, it's a great assignment. Um, In addition to all the beat work, he said, every Sunday, I want you to surprise me with a story. Just surprise me. Tell me something I don't know. Write something that I can't get out of my head. Every Sunday, come up with something that surprises me. Um, We don't have that insider every Sunday anymore. Um, instead I just kind of think of it as like, how do I do that regularly? Sometimes it appears on a Wednesday. Sometimes it's a Thursday. Maybe it's twice in a week. Maybe it's not anything in a week. If I have to travel a bunch, but how do I write a story and prepare and stay organized to surprise my editor?
0: Last one for me is this, um, you know, the Cardinals historically have been obviously, a uh, a great baseball team and yeah. they're usually, um, they're usually in contention every year, uh, it's very rare to see them not have meaningful baseball in September. So this year is a bit of an anomaly. Uh, what has it been like for you to cover a team where um, like the, the, the possibility of the playoffs is absolutely no storyline, but yet you have to still, uh, you know, fill your pages for the last month with stuff. This is uh, this has been probably, I, I would certainly say like, Late August September has been a very unique writing experience, reporting experience for you this year.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's different. I haven't covered a, I don't think I've covered a losing. I mean, I have the one Cardinals losing team, two thousand seven, and even that team was kind of in it for a long time. Um, you know, and then even like going back earlier in my career, you know, um, LSU football not exactly a losing program. Um, I covered the Denver Nuggets, but they were in the playoff contention while I covered them, and then the Blues were always in the playoffs. Um, so this is kind of LSU baseball, but they won the national championship. Yeah. They were so always good. Really, right. yeah, that doesn't really count. Um, but, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I yeah, it's, it's different. Um, and in a social media age, I think, you know, like covering this in 2023 is, would be a lot different than covering it in say 2005 or 2010, even, um, you know, there's so some anger, um, there's a lot more of that probably, um, Than uh then questions and i think you know we've thought a lot about this we've talked me and my colleagues on the beat um lynn worthy daniel guerrero who um are on the baseball beat with me at the post dispatch we we talk a lot about like okay we got to know the difference in covering games the games matter less the scores matter uh, The like the tension isn't there it like stands out as a singular interesting game like adam wainwright's quest for 200 wins right Like that, every moment of that game and covering that game. And it was very similar in ways to the 700th home run is, you know, you're covering that, trying to capture um, not just what happened in the moment, but what it means for the individual and what it means for history. Um, You know, you have to be aware of that. But then there are other games where because they're not in the race, it's more about what's it mean for the future. Um, So you start like, You know, like the other day, just to give you a specific example, I mean, they lost the game. They lost the game on an interesting match. They had a lefty, a rookie lefty who's new to the bullpen, um, face Manny Machado, who hit his second home run of the game and decided the game. Well, why is that lefty in there? And instead of covering it from a point of view, it was like this this quakes their postseason chances or how could they throw a game away with that match, lefty-righty, Manny Machado versus rookie. I mean, there's a lot going on there that they had other options. You write the story about why they did that and how it hints at what they're trying to learn about the young pitcher for 2024. Um, so in some ways the games of September take on a singing type feel where you're more invested in trying to look at what moments mean, what it means for players, um, sometimes featureize the games, a lot of times trend the games and what actually happens in the games is going to be like minimally described.
0: Derek Gold is the lead baseball writer for the St. Louis Post Dispatch and his story a new bat old friends and timeless magic as Cardinals Albert Pujols source to 700 is one of the stories in the year's best sports writing 2023. Um I cannot recommend Derek's work enough uh if you just Usually you just sort of know if people, um, are not cheating readers, uh, from reading any story and anytime I've ever read his stuff, like I always just sort of come away like, all right, this, this is a guy who's delivering for readers every day. Um, listen, Derek, I, you know, we've never met, but, um, Again, it's such a weird thing to say. Congratulations, because it feels like I'm sort of self patting myself on the back. But I would just say that, like, uh, it was it was absolutely an honor to uh, put this great piece uh, in um, in the book I guest edited. So, uh, so I thank you and uh, and thanks well, for coming on today.
1: No, I I really appreciate it. it's one of the nicest and one of the most meaningful I've had um, in my career. And I mean that genuinely. Um, it was uh, it was a great thing to get the the email to um keep it was a difficult thing to keep a secret from some folks um you know i, I was really eager to tell some of my friends and some of my close close friends in the business um, because it just means a lot to me and um just what you said just there you know i mean this is a you know newspapers are still a daily thing and to to have somebody think that you deliver daily is, is a high compliment that that's one of the best things somebody can say um and i appreciate
0: that thanks Derek. Thank you. All right, as I said at the top, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have this woman on my podcast. She wrote one of the most amazing pieces that I've read, um, not just this year, but in any year. And it was just, it was just great that I can include her piece in. The year's best sports writing. It was one of the pieces when I first read it, I automatically knew it was in. Um, it's not to say that uh, it's not to say that the other pieces in the book uh, aren't great because they are, but when after reading her piece, I knew, and that to me was uh, a pretty good marker. Um, Cassidy Randall's piece was titled Alone at the Edge of the World. It was from the out of this magazine in October of 2020. 20- 22. Um, She is a freelance writer who tells stories on the environment, adventure, and people expanding human potential. Her work has appeared in Time Magazine, New York Times, National Geographic, and many other places. And I'm pleased to be joined on the Sports Media Podcast by Cassidy Randall. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So um, the sort of (laughs) it's almost embarrassing to do this because your piece is so brilliant that I'm going to give it like a one sentence cliff note, but you wrote about (laughs) Susie Goodall, who at the time was a 29 year old woman who was the youngest of 18 skippers competing in the golden globe race, which is essentially a voyage on the sea for madmen. And so if you can, for my audience, can you take us into your story, uh, what it was about and why you wanted to write it?
3: Yeah. Um, so this story is about a race that is run without modern technology. It's, it was the rerun in 2018 when Susie Goodall decided to do this race. It was a rerun of a 1968 race that had been dubbed a voyage for madmen because it was the first time that anyone tried to sail around the world solo without stopping. In 1968, no one had done this. And no one knew if a boat could even survive for 30,000 miles straight at sea. No one knew what would happen to the human mind alone on a sailboat for a year at a time or more. And these nine men had decided to try it. Um, and over the course of this year, only one man finished. And he had been the long shot with this slow boat that had broken down with so many different pieces of it. He performed these wild underwater repairs would shoot sharks to do it um, and when he sailed into Falmouth he became this legend but the other sailors sank abandoned the journey or committed suicide and so it had never been run again and in 2018 this Australian adventurer had decided that he wanted to recreate his hero's voyage through so Robin Knox Johnston was this sailor who had come in to Falmouth and sailed into legend. And if he didn't do it now, he probably never would. He was 60 years old. And he figured if he wanted to do it, uh, some other people would as well. Um, And some of those people included Susie Goodall. And soon this race actually had become so popular that the man who organized it had to pull his own entry just to run it. So 18 skippers had decided to sail in this race without modern technology that harkens back to 1968 Navigating with the stars, catching rain for fresh water, communicating via radio, handwriting their logs, sailing alone, not stepping off their boats. And Susie was the only woman among 18 skippers. And she is this introverted, really private woman. She was hoping to sail away to reconnect with the ocean. She was enthralled with celestial navigation and trying to find this sort of spiritual connection to the ocean that sailors used to have in her mind. And instead, because she was the only woman, she was singled out by the media and it really took this toll on her as we needed this story. You know, she was sailing at this time. It was 2018 was the year of the woman, right? We were so hungry for these stories of lone heroines and male dominated spheres. And, and that's not what she was after at all. And then in sailing away from it, she finally has these months at sea alone, this connection with her boat, this connection with the ocean. And she's able to kind of leave that behind. And then her boat is pitch pulled by this massive rogue wave in the southern ocean. It catapults her boat end over end, leaves her essentially slowly sinking. The media gloms onto this and the narrative is immediately flipped from her being the lone heroine to being this damsel in distress, even though she was very prepared to rescue herself. And so the story is really about this kind of journey that she was on, but also this toll it took on her.
0: Let me read the uh, first paragraph of this and then have some questions. In the heaving seas of the Southern Ocean, a small red hulled sailboat tossed and rolled at the mercy of the tail end of a tempest. The boat's mast was sheared away. Its yellow sail sunk deep in the sea. Amid the wreckage of the cabin, Susie Goodall sloshed through water, seeping in from the deck, which had cracked when a great wave somersaulted the boat end over end. She was freezing, having been lashed by ocean rain and wind. Her hands were raw and bloody, except for the boat, her companion and home for the 15,000 miles she sailed over the past five months. Goodall was alone. How did you go about trying to recreate her experience in this boat when of course, you were not there.
3: So I am I am not I would not call myself a sailor, but my dad had this little sailboat in Dana Point when my sister and I were little, and he taught us both to sail. And my sister really trended towards the ocean while I trended towards mountains. And so I spent time on sailboats. I've never done blue water sailing. Uh, to the extent that Susie has, which is when you can't see land. I've never been alone on a sailboat, but I've been alone in the mountains. I've been in some sort of not near as desperate situations as she has, but I've been in those kinds of environments. And I think that that gave me a little bit of understanding and potentially what she had experienced, but really she trusted me to let me inside her head. And that was a huge gift from her to me. Um, I didn't necessarily expect that because she had a a bad taste in her mouth uh, from journalists and media and the way she'd been portrayed. And the fact that I was able to recreate it was only because she let me and because she told me so much.
0: One of the things about this piece that um, was just really fascinating for me as a reader was once you come away with it, you sort of come to the conclusion how long could this have taken? Like this writer immersed herself in this story. The descriptions are just unbelievably provocative. And it would be one of those pieces where you as the writer would have to repeatedly go back to subjects to make sure that you had your nomenclature right to make sure that you had your mood, right. You did a lot of reporting just honestly on the race itself and um, the sport and history so actually, one of this one of the things I was really interested in asking you when I knew you were coming on is, um, from conception to completion, like how long did this take? How arduous was this to sort of as a time investment?
3: Oh, well, it was at least a year, I would say. But I think it goes back actually to when she twenty eighteen that twenty eighteen race when a friend of mine who's also a sailor had said, "Have you?" been watching this have you seen this woman you need to write a story about her and she'd already had so many stories written on her um and then my friend reached back out and said have you seen she shipwrecked have you seen this and so I actually wrote one of those stories on her shipwreck um and it was a, I wasn't able to speak to her obviously she was on her sailboat in the southern ocean bobbing around trying to save herself but I noticed after that that she there were no direct quotes from her in the media. She hadn't spoken to anyone. And I kind of, in thinking about other stories I wanted to tell, I was really looking for a book to write. I wanted a really immersive um, adventure kind of book to write with some really fascinating in-depth characters. And I thought of Susie and I just reached out to her in September of, gosh, what would that have been? I don't know, 2021, 22. And basically was like what happened to you um and it took a long time we had several conversations before she agreed to work on a story with me and then i went to so we you know we spoke over zoom we spoke over the phone and then i went to edinburgh where she lived at the time and spent a week with her and she read to me from her journals she told me everything we spent hours every day together and even after that I would call her up. I would tell her what I was thinking. I would run certain sort of arcs by her to make sure that things were accurate. Um, As we were going through fact checking, obviously, I was very much in touch with her to make sure that all the nomenclature was correct. So we were we worked very closely together on this. I call it together, even though she was a source for, for a year of our lives, for sure.
0: I want to ask you a, sort of a real-world question here. When you invest so much of your time in one piece, and maybe, by the way, you were doing other stuff at the same time, like there's – there have to be some kind of – obviously, you want there to be a creative and emotional uh, payoff. And there probably just will be just when you file the piece, like you feel like, okay, I wrote the piece I wanted. But the reality is you have to pay your bills. You have to make money. And so like how much of an investment was it just in terms of – the reality of like, was this one piece to work on for one year, like worth it for you financially? Or do you have to supplement doing other things so that you can still continue to do this piece, which clearly you you invested in?
3: Oh yeah, I was definitely doing other things. I wish that uh, I could make my living just writing one in-depth piece like that. And I wish that writers were paid what they are worth. But the Atavist does a very good job of Paying for long form and paying for the travel that's required. So, um, I mean, if I look at the time or even what I was paid per word, then I, I yeah, don't. Don't, want don't to tell do you that. What don't don't, don't, do the, don't do the don't the, uh, do think about it per word. I mean, yeah. I could have Don't the book do it by the hour. Um, but it was it was far better than anything I've el- else I've ever been paid for. But no, at the time I was working on. Um, a feature about wolves for Rolling Stone. I was doing a huge sponsored content piece for National Geographic. I was working on the concept for my next book. I was publishing my first book. It was, I wish that I could have only given this my entire mind for a year, but that's not how it works, unfortunately. And so I do feel fortunate that there are these publications like the Atavist that make the space for you to at least be able to give, you know, three months of your time. I mean, I probably had about three months, I would say total of uninterrupted time that I could just work on this story, which was a gift as well.
0: You sort of started to um, get into this a little bit. uh, But let me ask you broadly, how challenging is it to make a living as a freelance writer in 2023?
3: I don't know if I'm the right person to ask about that. I think there are a lot of writers who are far more successful than I am. Sometimes I feel like there's this club and somehow I couldn't, I never got the password to get in, type of thing. Um, But I find it very challenging. I mean, the majority of my income probably comes from working on sponsored content, you know, with brands or major publications. I wish that, you know, I was paid by these, even these big publications like Rolling Stone don't have the budget anymore to pay writers very much. And so, you know, I'm working on a book right now. And I think that advance was very helpful in me being able to support myself writing. But to be honest, I think for me, a lot of these things end up being passion projects. I mean, if I look at the cost per time for this out of a story, that was a passion project. And good thing, because I absolutely loved working on that. I loved it.
0: What um, If you can, what is your upcoming book and what's the subject and when do you expect it to be out?
3: Yeah, I'm working on a book about the first all-female climb of Denali in 1970 that was the first all-women's successful ascent of any of the world's high peaks in history. I mean, we had sent men to the moon by then and women had not stood on top of the high points of the earth. And for the most part, this is an unfold story. And I think my guess on that is because it was still a time in the mountain culture, mountaineering world, where if women had achieved a summit without men's help or a difficult route, then that route was no longer worth even trying for men. Um, and of course, this was Denali and nobody wanted to talk about it. And that has been, it is, it's, it's the most challenging thing I've ever written because all of these women are very complicated Women with their own stakes and their own goals, and you know, one of them has even gotten up and walked onto the page as a main character that I didn't expect. And so, it's not coming out supposedly until April twenty twenty five. I'd love for it to come out sooner because it's just one of those stories I want the world to see. But the book world moves very slowly.
0: One of the things, I mean, this is such like a, a modern kind of look or take. But after reading your piece, like, uh you know, one of the immediate things I thought was like, this can be turned into a. Uh, some kind of feature film or some kind of, um, not necessarily like, you know, you're going to the movies to do it, but you know, a Netflix type of, of place. Yes. It's sailing, which is obviously not the NFL or something like that, but it's an adventure. And I think people can relate to it. Um, have any producers contacted you, uh, about this story? If not, they really should.
3: I am surprised that no one has to be honest. So if you know of any, you just, send them my way because there are all these things I would love to tell somebody who wants to do a longer sort of movie narrative if Susie is willing as well obviously but there are parts that we took out of this like I said I could have written a whole book on this where she had this moment there's this phenomenon in with explorers and adventurers when you're sort of on this knife edge of survival called the third man syndrome shackleton experienced it when he was hiking across south georgia trying to save his men who after his ship endurance had been buckled in sea ice where you feel like there is this presence that is with you and helping you. And Susie had that. She had this moment on her Atlantic crossing where she was the most tired she had ever been. Her self-steering had broken in a storm. She had to make it to the Lisbon Harbor. This is her first Atlantic crossing and get through these busy shipping lanes without being hit by a freighter. She thought she wasn't going to make it. And in the dark of midnight, this Viking-looking character appears across from her and another one beside her. And they were wearing these old-time Scandinavian coats. It was so vivid to her. And the one across from her leans over and his hand brushes hers as he puts it on the tiller. And he says, don't worry, we're here now. And then they disappeared. And she was wide awake after that. And I mean, things like that just lend themselves to either visual storytelling or longer narrative storytelling that there's just so much room, I think, in this kind of... Adventure writing to get deep into these very psychological, you know, impacts of what it's like to be alone out there with the elements.
0: All right, my producer Patrick Antonin and I are going to start to put our money together, Cassie. You may be hearing from us in a couple weeks. Um, All right, the final um, question I want to ask you again. You know, this incredible piece obviously makes the book, but. you know, you are not a sports writer by trade at all. You're a um, you're a writer who does um, many different things. And obviously, as you mentioned during this interview, a lot of sort of adventure or environmental stuff. Um, when you were writing this, like, did you – my sense is like you didn't even think of it as like a, a sports piece. My sense is you probably just wanted to tell Susie's story. So I don't know. I'm trying to ask this elegantly. I don't know. Does it surprise you that you ended up in a – Best sports sports writing anthology? Because I imagine you probably went into this piece, not necessarily like, oh, this is a piece of sports writing, but this is the story of this remarkable woman who's competing in this kind of amazing race.
3: It did a little bit. Yeah, it did surprise me a little bit, but... Then as I'm reading these other pieces, uh, I had been meaning to read that stone skipping piece by Sean Williams that appeared in Outside for the longest time. And I could not put that story down. And same with the, the one following it about the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And it just reminds me, I think, that sports writing is so much more than writing about traditional sports. And it is that idea about sports that to me I think sports is the way that we interact with each other and with our environment right whether it's with fabricated things like balls and hoops or sailboats and so I think that having this piece be in there is this kind of beautiful reminder that the idea of sports transcends things like courts and hoops and that our entire world is our arena which I love that
0: all right. Remember this name, Cassidy Randall. She is, she is legit one of the best writers in the U.S. Um, and I know, at least for me, anything she writes from now on, uh, I'll be reading. She's a freelance writer. Uh, as she mentioned on this podcast, telling stories or focusing on stories on the environment, adventure, and people expanding human potential. Her story in the 2023 uh, Best Sports Writing Book is Alone at the Edge of the World from the Adivis magazine October 2022 I cannot recommend it enough every single person I've sent it to is like holy shit who is this writer I'm like yeah that's what I've been saying dude." Um, and so um, it was an absolute like pleasure to include her work in this Cassidy uh, continued success um, I'm rooting for somebody to pay you a shitload of money for one of your stories because you absolutely deserve it
3: <laughs> thank you so much maybe after such a glowing endorsement that will happen
0: <laughs> Not that that's the reason you're doing it, but um, but this is high-quality work. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, my uh, three uh, uh, just excellent guests and all three are incredible writers. Um, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star and a nice note. That ha- That's how this podcast continues. A previous podcast before this one, Iron Eagle came on. To talk about uh, his broadcasting career, uh, Taylor Swift in game reference. Jimmy Train was also on to talk about the WWE and NBC Universal's Media Rights Partnership. We've done obviously the mini sports uh, viewership podcasts, uh, check those out if uh, if you like them. Had a number of roundtables with uh, Chad Finn, as well as John Lewis, uh, Al Michaels, Fred Gaddely, and Mark Titleman on Amazon's Prime videos. Thursday Night Football, they were on this podcast not too long ago. Had Kevin Clark, now of Omaha Productions and ESPN, talking about the NFL again. Head to the archives. Uh, There should be some stuff you like. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on Sports Media Podcast.